Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. My grandmother used to tell a story about coming to America from Poland, how she sang God Bless America to cheer up all the grown-ups on the ship. She was five or six years old, traveling alone with her mom. For her, it must have been a big adventure. I can hardly imagine what it was like for her mom, my great-grandmother, how bad things must have been for Jews in their hometown of Bialystok for her to pick up and leave like that without her husband, heading toward some distant cousin in the undiscovered country of Vineland, New Jersey. My guest today left Egypt as an adult for the U.S., also under politically grim circumstances. During the Arab Spring, as his country convulsed toward revolution, he became a leading voice of dissent. A trained surgeon, he made an unlikely transition to famous TV satirist for millions of viewers on his nightly political comedy show. Bassem risked jail, helped facilitate the toppling of a dictator who'd been in power for 30 years, and after all that change, decided it was time to start a new life in America. Bassem Youssef is a comedian, writer, and the smart, funny host of the podcast Remade in America. Welcome to Think Again, Bassem. Thank you so much for having me. How long have you been in the U.S., like fully? Uh, two and a half years. Two, two and, and a half. half. Three, three years, yeah. And one of the things you must have learned in that time is how little Americans know about what happened in Egypt. This is a very common uh, stereotype that Americans don't know anything about the rest of the world. But this could be said about every other country. What does a regular average Egyptian know what, about what's happening in Gabon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Cameroon? I do feel like the politics are a little tough for us to follow in countries Absolutely. where there's so much upheaval. I, I'm telling you that the, the, the politics are even tough to follow for people living there. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and the, the, the thing is, Americans, because they, are, they have a very busy life, so they follow sound bites. Right. And it, it really depends what, where the sound bites come from. Is it from the right-wing media or the... Uh, left-leaning uh, uh, media. It is very hard actually to know what the truth is if you're not really immersed there. And even for the people who are immersed there, you will find a lot of people who are living in denial because it, it really depends on what kind of ideology do you follow. Uh, you will be very surprised to uh, know that there are Egyptians who've been living here for 25 years, have the American uh, nationality. They pay taxes for the federal government and they support military dictatorship. And yet, when they tell them that this is wrong and this is what the news said, they said, like, this is a conspiracy from America. <laughs> that same country you are paying taxes to. And the same way when you speak to Trump supporters. Right. It is not about the truth. It's not about the facts, about what, who team you're cheering. You're cheering your team. I mean... I'm, yeah. I'm sorry to say this, but like the New York Knicks sucks, but like you still <laughs> you still cheer for them. You're not gonna you're gonna not gonna be rooting for Cleveland because they are the better team. It's your team, right, for right. better or for worse. But unfortunately, what works in sports doesn't work in politics because you affect other people's life. I feel like denial is denial and a certain amount of blindness in terms of your worldview is pretty much universal, but yes. that there are different degrees. I think this was on one of the episodes of your podcast talking about a kind of Stockholm sy syndrome that people have with respect to dictators. This was something that was a little bit unfamiliar to me. Like I having never having not lived through a dictatorship, I was interested to hear about this. Because in in these countries the strong man of the country right. they give the people a notion of like I if I go it will be chaos. And they actually devise their whole uh, rule on that. And we've seen that in Syria. If you're going to revolt against me, I'm going to burn the whole country down. So it is 
Everybody knows that he's a dictator. Everybody knows that he is a thug. Right. But he's the thug that is protecting us from him. So a lot of people now kind of, oh, where are the days of Saddam Hussein? Yeah, yeah, where yeah. Where are yeah. the days of Gaddafi? Right, where, right. I mean, we were much better off. But that is the illusion of stability that these dictators give you. Well, people even now is like, oh, why did we do the, the Arab Spring? We had Mubarak for 30 years. He was good. But what we are living in right now is the result of Mubarak policies. Because what they do is they, they do a very good job in systematically destroying whatever liberal or secular opposition there. Right. Leaving only space, a controlled space for the Islamists and the radicals. Mm-hmm. So people and the West, they know that if this strong man leaves, they will be left for the lines. The chaos is a very well-designed plan. And this is why they are, they are where they are. And America, you know, any American president who come here, he's here for four years. He doesn't want any trouble. Right. Like, all right, you know what? He's a SOB, but he's our SOB. You mm-hmm. know, as long as he can control this piece of land, as long as he can maintain security arrangements, as long as we can control the weapon uh, flow to this country, he can stay. What about uh, human rights? Ah, we're going to give him a slap on the hand every now and then. The chaos, which, as you say, is well-designed or well-planned, I mean, it's very real. That is to say, if you decide to topple the dictator, you are taking a very real risk that it's going to take a very long time to build anything like yes. an open, yes, but the thing democratic is, country. But, the, like, uh, but I, that's why this is not sustainable. These are all fragile regimes, and it will end bad, very bad. And it we and I think when people say, do you think it will get better? It's like it will get much worse before it gets better. Obviously, there are a lot of Americans on the left who are like, oh my god, oh my god, you know, we are heading into a dictatorship with Trump. Mm-hmm. I've heard you be sort of dismissive about that on your podcast, like the, like you have no idea really quite oh, what it's well. Like. In jo- jokingly, we say like, oh, you have you have a dictatorship. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You haven't seen dictatorship, yeah. uh, but practically, I think they should be freaked out. Not because we are heading uh, towards the dictator. They, you should be freaked out so not to head towards the dictatorship. Because it's the freaking out that makes you go vote. Right. It's the freaking out that makes you go and make changes. And we have seen changes. We have seen the rise of certain voices that, I mean, we've seen flipping of seats. Uh, the seat of Alabama were flipped. I was like, what? When? How? You know, so now I think what, for the first time, people are not viewing seats as red and blue. Any seat could be flipped if enough people get together and go vote. And that will, all of that will be put to the test in the midterms. We will see what will happen because I don't really care about Trump. I care about what damage he can do through the, uh, the executive branches, mm-hmm. especially the Senate and the House, because these are the people who pass the legislation. And these are the people who can stop the legislation. I think the left is still, to a certain extent, spinning out of control, not just not just about getting out to the polls. I think that's absolutely essential. We need that control. But about the way that this guy has changed the national conversation, like, we don't really have that experience of doublespeak on the political stage that must be very familiar yeah. to you coming and, and, from, and, and, from and, 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 he, and his people don't even care if he is lying or not. Yeah, that's they, what I'm they, saying. They I'm care like, about like a guy who would stand up for the people that they hate. Yeah. That must be very familiar in Egypt yeah. when somebody is saying something that is just blatantly wrong. Yeah. And then people say, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. I, was like, I, I would have that guy over your guy anytime. Yeah. Whatever guy you have. Yeah, that kind of, yeah, I guess tribal 
Yeah, it's tribalism. Denial. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The the point at which you decided to leave, you'd been wanting to come to America for, as a doctor for many for many years. Yeah, yeah? And just since like last decade, I wanted to come here as a doctor. As a doctor. And then uh, the revolution happened, and then I did these YouTube videos, and that was like a total shift. And I ended up in America, but now as an entertainer. Yeah. How did, first of all, what made you think that you could just get on YouTube and start doing, like, do you just, just like, fuck it, my country is falling apart, I need to do something? Like, no, what? here's the thing. When the revolution happened, I was just a regular doctor going to the Tahrir Square, fixing people's wounds and stitching people from their clashes. Yeah. But, uh, and that, but the reality that I saw in the streets, that this was a revolution, people wanting freedom. I go back home and it was a different reality. It was a conspiracy. It was like a, a devious plot by the CIA and the. What Mossad you were seeing on the news, the yeah, narrative the, 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 that the, they the, were spinning. The, yeah. the state-run media, yeah. So I wanted to create a show, uh, our videos, to remind people of the the kind of lies that were kind of before people forget. So uh, I started to do the videos, and I didn't really expect anything. I was basically killing time until the G, the H1 visas come from Cleveland. Okay. <laughs> I really didn't think of it. I thought, oh, it would be nice to have ten thousand views couple of weeks, five million. Had you been on camera before? No. Had you done anything like nothing. this? No. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. I was just like an avid follower of John Stewart and said, I want to do it the same way that John Stewart do with very limited abilities. And, and you were recently married at that time? Three months. Three months, yeah. yeah. So so your poor long-suffering wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah but, 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 and, and we didn't really think about it. We just like, you know, do it in our, like in, a, in an yeah. empty room and then the, the videos and then it exploded and then every single network wanted me to be on the platform and at that at that time the, the the papers came from Cleveland and I had to make a choice and I chose to stay and said I'm gonna put put it off for a year I can always go back to medicine in a year mm. and I continued being a doctor a faculty member in Cary University Hospital while doing the show we got we got good success moderate success according to our budget and said like I don't want to do this anymore I want to blow it up to proportion I want to do this with a live audience like what I see in American television so I came to America and I shadowed John Stewart team for two days and I said that would be it would be nice to have a to snap a picture with John Stewart in the process and he invited me to his office to speak for an hour for for five minutes and then it extended to an hour then I find him inviting me to be a guest on the show. So that, 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 and that's that, huge. And, and yeah. that was huge. And then I told him, I promise you that in a year, I'm going to have a big show. I have the biggest show in the Middle East. And I hope you can come. And a year later, he came on my show. And the stakes are so high in, yes. in that kind of context. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, you know, The Daily Show makes a difference for sure in America. But I mean, it's kind of, it's life and death over there. Yeah, I was hated by many. I was loved by many. I was a very controversial figure. Yeah. You know, if you don't like John Stewart or Trevor Noah or John Oliver, you just don't watch them. Right. But back home, even people who didn't like me watch me to hate and to attack. Did your family receive death threats? Was there actual, like, were you concerned about your life? Did you have bodyguards? Uh, I had bodyguards at a certain point, uh -huh. but then I, I, I dismissed them. I couldn't live like that. Uh -huh. So, like, no bodyguards ever stopped a bullet. People give me credit for being a reason for the fall of the Muslim Brotherhood president, which I always reject because I was just doing my job as a satirist. And they were the reason for their demise, not me. Under the Islamist, I was summoned for the prosecutor office and I was interrogated for six hours. Wow. Six and, hours straight. Yeah. 
And I got out and I continued my show. And under the military, they stopped my show twice. They jammed the signal of the satellite, the satellite signal twice. Mm. I was like kind of threatened and harassed a lot. And then I ended up having my show pulled off the air because of the pressure of the network. Right. And I couldn't even speak openly about it because I know that I will hurt a lot of people. They didn't put you in jail maybe to not make a they, martyr out of you? or No, here's the thing. Because at the beginning of the, the first year of the military rule, they wanted to have legitimacy around the world and they didn't want to make it so obvious. So they kind of like, they made other people do the dirty job. Gotcha. You see, that part of the world, they don't actually arrest you for freedom of expression. They do it now because they're more comfortable they now. They do it in Turkey, for sure. <laughs> they do it now in yeah. Egypt because they kind of like got the legitimacy. They're friends with Europe and America now and they're giving them the weapons and the money they need. But at that time, it has to be something else. It'll be like a financial dispute. Right. It has to be like a legal problem, a tax problem. I was in dispute with the, with the, with the network that stopped my show and I lost the verdict and I was slammed by a huge fine, never, ever, ever heard of like 100 million pounds. And that was like a totally politicized verdict. What was the charge? Breach of contract. <laughs> While they're the one who actually stopped my show, which is crazy, right? Breach and of contract on the basis that you... That, 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 that I left them and I went to another channel okay. because they stopped my show. <laughs> but here's the thing. The verdict, came, I remember the verdict came out 2014, 11th of November, 2014, noon. My lawyer talked, called me and said like, listen, this is not just a verdict for a fine that you'll never e even be able to, to pay. This is a fine that they will use to even put you in jail or put you on a no-fly list. Mm. You have to go to the airport right now before it hits the news. Mm. So five hours after the news, after the verdict, I was on a plane leaving Egypt for the last time. So now I wanna, now I wanna get to sort of the premise of your podcast, Remade in America, and just what that is for you as, I mean, first of all, you were a doctor. I know that you realized at some point that that, that just wasn't what you wanted to be doing. But I mean, you had created this life for yourself and this persona and this media presence in Egypt. And then you came here. How have you, what's it been like for you trying to I don't know, decide who to be as an entertainer. All my life I was an outsider. When I was a doctor, I didn't really fit in. I wasn't like, I was a nerd, but not a typical nerd. I, all, I wanted to have fun and have a social life and have and, and voice my opinion. And that was not, was kind of frowned upon in a very conservative medical society. How long were you a practicing surgeon? Uh, so uh, studying and practicing a total of 19 years. Uh -huh. And then when I did the show, that was also out of the norm. And I always felt as an outsider, not just by the government, but a lot of people with very conservative uh, opinions, even parts of well, members of my family who kind of oppose what I did. And then I come here, for, again, I'm an outsider trying to break into the media here with a language that's not mine. Yeah. English is my second language and I have to do comedy and entertain people with a language that I'm not used to. So I'm kind of like reinventing myself for the third or fourth time now. So the podcast is all about outsider stories, people who feel that they're outsiders. I refuse that this will be a, a show about immigrants because even if immigrants are outsiders, Americans could be a, a, who are born here are also outsiders sometimes. Right, right, right. You'll be a white man born in the middle of Texas and you feel like you're a woman. People have stories and, and the human narrative is fascinating. How all of this construct is made to put you in a certain place and you fight to break out and struggle against. And this struggle is what makes people successful. In the American media and the American political and cultural landscape right now, if 
you want to come out and talk about feeling like an outsider, it is helpful to be from an, a politically oppressed group. I don't agree with the, I don't uh, really agree with this narrative because uh, this is a, a kind of a reverse racism. <laughs> you know, I'm sure that people who are not minorities also have their own struggles. They have problems. Yeah. I don't like people say, oh, you can't speak because you're a white person because you're a straight white male who have no problems. I guess what's happening right now, or what I mean to say is that there's a lot of battles being fought right now against oppression. And they're being fought from within identity spaces yes. where people's outsider status and the intensity of that outsider status is their political capital. It could be, but it should not be your only political capital. It should not be like a way to just victimize yourself. Because I, as a Muslim, I have a problem with talking about Muslim minorities only through victimization. I don't like that. We, there is, and also uh, I'm, I'm against having the voices of Muslim Americans being hijacked by a, a smaller group of people who only want to give one image for Muslims, whether that's an external image or a certain practice, or Arabs or Middle Easterns. Right. So for example, if I tell you that Middle Eastern Americans or Arab American, you will automatically think of one image of a Muslim hijabi woman who is oppressed. Right. right. But also Arabs are Christians. Middle Easterns could be Christians and Arabs could be atheists. And, and they could be all kinds of uh, the spectrum of identities. Right. Right. And uh, they could be a Muslim woman who is uh, uh, practicing or not practicing, who is wearing or not wearing a hijab, a guy who is wearing or who is having or not having a beard. It is this kind of like mm. multiple mm. facets of what people from my area look like. But the thing is like the human brain want to simplify. So for example, people tell me, aren't you happy now? It's like a great time that you, you have more representation in media. I said like, like who? It's like, mm -hmm. well, you have Aziz Ansari and Hassan Manaj and, and Asif Manvi and Kamal Nunyan. Just like, these are Pakistanis and Indians. Mm. Is it because they're Muslims you think that they're <laughs> like me? These are the different culture. And then they said, oh, how about like the refugees coming from your part of the world? I said, you mean Syrians? <laughs> these are a different group of people. Yeah. Here's the thing about America that really, I really like. It's about the individual. And yet when you treat other people, you group them when something bad happened and it, it happened to be a brown guy, a Muslim, whatever, Afghani, yeah. now I have to answer for this. Where did the individuality go? This is a good place for us to switch to the second part of the show, cool. shift to the second part of the show for the audience. This is where the video producers of Big Think have picked short clips from our interview archives that neither Bassem nor I have seen before. Um, and we're gonna watch them and discuss them. This is Alvin Hall, uh, an author, and the clip is called Being Black in the U.S. versus the U.K. There's a big difference. Two facts. One, I define myself as a black man first, because that's what you're going to see when you look at me. Being gay is something I define myself second, third, I can't decide, really. Uh, but it's not everything I am. It's a part of the complexity that I am. And that's not backing away from the fact that I'm gay. It's just that there are other aspects of my personality which are much more important to me and how I negotiate the world. My career in the UK and other parts of the world 
really came about because someone there saw my talent at being able to talk about money, personal finance, cultural issues, and my curiosity and opened the door for me. I don't think that I would have had the same opportunity in the United States. Why not? Partly because when people look at me, they don't see my skill sets. And they're always filtered through their own prejudice. In the UK and other parts of the world, not all but many, people will give you credit. They'll give you the opportunity, even if it's the opportunity to fail. But it's an opportunity that you can turn into success. I don't think that what happened with my career in the United Kingdom would have happened for me in America. I don't think that the affection that the people in the UK have for me would have come to me in America. I think that people saw my curiosity, saw my hunger, saw my ability to talk about things honestly and openly and genuinely, and they appreciated that. I, don't, I will never know why we couldn't convince Americans to embrace that side of me. And many years ago, I stopped wondering. I just stopped. When I use the term code, I mean when people know and don't know they're bigoted, racist, or generally prejudiced, but they try to hide it. So you have to be aware of eye movements, hand gestures, body language, even sometimes word choices, because that word choice can often telescope to you suddenly exactly what you're dealing with. And often the people who use those terms are so unaware that they don't even know the import of what they're saying. But if you know, then that means you can adjust yourself to the situation. They are not likely to change, and you will gain nothing by calling them out on it, except next time it'll be more subtle. So often I see it, I adjust me. Because as I learned from that therapist many years ago, it's me I have to change. It's me I have to alter, not them. What are your initial thoughts on seeing that? I have to respectively, respectively disagree with him. On everything? On everything. <laughs> okay. Not every. I mean, like, his main point is that, like, look at me at the UK. If I was in the States, I wouldn't have made it. I understand, of course, that he is talking through a personal experience. Maybe he had a bad experience in the United States, and he has a much better experience in the UK. But I'll give you two words, Apple and Google. The CEO of Apple is openly gay, and the CEO of Google is an Indian immigrant. Well, that negates everything that he says. But he's talking about being black, not not gay. So, but, no, no, he's talking about black and gay. But first, black. He says that's what people see when they look at me. 
And he says, so that's... So, 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 so there's no black successful people in this country? I mean, there are, of course, but the CEO of... People who are in the entertainment business. Entertainment business, you have all colors of rainbow, right? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you know, we don't have any actual black Americans in this room to to speak to this. I'm sure they're like... A, but a, I want to say a, that a, like... A, a black Americans, if they're this room, they can talk volumes about the injustice and pressures that they're having. But to just talk about this and saying there's absolutely no racism in Europe... That's a little bit of a far stretch. As, there there uh, wouldn't uh, have been Brexit if there were yeah, racism. I mean, in, I mean, yeah, in, I mean, yeah he's the guy is talking about the, 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 the in the country that's like the most divisive, destructive vote in the history of England in the past <laughs> hundred years was motivated by racism and fear of immigrants. Right, right. So I, no, I, I mean, I, the, I, 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 I cannot buy into his conversation. The, the, the particulars of the history are very different. I mean, here, here it is. This particular we were talking about generalizations earlier yes. and the way people try to yes. see things in very broad strokes. In America, there's a whole set of cognitive assumptions that attach yeah. to there's black Americans. There's horrible things that's happening you know, here. Which police, is different. You there's know. police brutality here. There's like, yeah, yeah. There, 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 there's, there's horrible stuff. But like, I, we can, I don't think that this is a very constructive way to speak about the differences between America mm. and England because it's a very, it's yeah, too yeah, generalized. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like based on his... Uh, I'm, I'm sure that you went through a lot and I respect his, his experience, but I don't think, again, if someone from a total outsider wanted to know about planet Earth, what's happening here, that will not be a good representation of what's happening. There's going to be somebody in every culture that is historically treated as the other. And in America, you know, the difference is that from, uh, from some other countries, at least, is that there's a fight, there's a conversation, people can talk about it, people can... You know, these these things run deep in our culture still, and it's still there's it's still difficult for of many course. Black Americans. Of, of course, it but, is. But no, 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 but nobody but will can, ever. But disagree. you can get on the news and talk about it. On one of the episodes of your podcast, you were talking about how, and I knew this to be true as well. This is true in Turkey too. The um, skin color racism in Egypt as well. Like, oh yeah, absolutely. It's crazy. We, like, we have racism in the Arab world and the Muslim world, not just skin color, but also f especially faith and beliefs. The way that you look to people who do not believe the same way you do is, is pretty much condescending and you think that they're more inferior. I, I once, I had a, an, um, an interview in Deutsche Welle, the big German mm. uh, broadcast news in Germany. And, and the, the, the interview was in English and then I did it again in Arabic because there are two different services. And I was asked about like Donald Trump right to power and how do what do you think is racism happening in America? And I said yes. And I said like Donald Trump is as is dangerous and racist and bigoted and everything, but that should actually give us a chance as Arabs and Muslims to look into uh, within the racism within our own communities. And I had like a huge backlash of <laughs> people like oh how dare you? It's like yeah, well, it's like you know what? Screw you guys. We are racist and we need to acknowledge this. Mm. We do have racism in America, and it is sanctioned. But the difference is sanctioned by the government, and it is promoted in order to control the people because this is a great divisive power. But the idea of like, oh, we are peace-loving people. No, we have racist people in the Middle East as much as we have in America. And we need to look within and be comfortable talking about it. But this is the way we get rid of it. You will be surprised that like a racist white person in the middle of America has much in common with a racist uh, Muslim man in the Middle East more than he has in common with you as an American. Mm -hmm. So it is... Uh, in America, they, those conversations are often avoided. I mean, for example, I've heard black Americans talk about the homophobia within the black community. Like, it's tough to be a gay black male. Hey, there was even like a Latina singer who was dark and she was, uh, people tell her, uh, telling, uh, saying that she's 
she's faking her blackness and she had to come out. I think, I don't know if she's from Colombia or from the Domin- Dominican, I guess. Okay. But I'm, I'm not sure. And she said like, you know, black Latino people and Latinas actually exists. That's really funny. So she was being accused by her own community or no, by the, by, the by, media in general? By both, by people from Latin parts and people from black community that, and she's, what's faking ir- her, that she's faking her blackness. What's ironic about that is I know for a fact that like in Venezuela, for example, it was only, you know, with the rise of Hugo Chavez that you ever had an afterward that you ever had anyone even slightly dark as a Miss Venezuela. Mm. Mm. You know, people were bleaching their skin. They, you know, it, yeah, it happens everywhere. It happens you know, in India. It yeah, happens in the Middle yeah, East. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the bleaching creams are very popular there, and <laughs> they they consider whiteness is just like the uh, the uh, the cornerstone of beauty. Yeah, so you can't win. Either you're too white or you're or yes. you're too dark. You're yes, faking it somehow. Welcome to social media, <laughs> where um, you can never win. <laughs> Let's take a look at the the second of the two clips. Okay. All right. So this is the physicist Michio Kaku, and the clip is about how the new economics of space exploration changes everything. We are entering what I call the next golden era of space exploration. The first golden era was back in the 1960s, but it was unsustainable. In 1966, the NASA budget consumed 5% of the entire federal budget. It was impossible to sustain that level of spending. Now it's about 0.5%. However, now with the injection of new ideas, fresh enthusiasm from the private sector, from Silicon Valley billionaires, we have a whole new different landscape. Just recently, we had that sensational launch of the Falcon Heavy rocket financed by zero, zero amount of taxpayers' dollars. And it shows you that the economics have changed. And now with the introduction of reusable rockets, we're not talking about opening up the heavens to perhaps a whole new economic landscape that is 10% the cost of the past. To put me in orbit around the Earth costs about $10,000 a pound. That's my weight in gold. Think of my body made out of solid gold. That's what it takes me to put, just to go around the Earth in near orbit. To go to the moon would cost about $100,000 a pound. To put me on Mars would cost at least a million dollars a pound. That is unsustainable. And that's where the reusable rockets come in, because we're not talking about dropping the cost by a factor of 10. Instead of $10,000 a pound, SpaceX wants to bring it down to a thousand dollars a pound. December of 2019, NASA will send the SLS booster rocket and the Orion module around the moon on a robotic unmanned mission. Just a few years after that, the first astronauts will go back to the moon after a 50-year gap. And by late in the next decade, we hope to have a lunar orbiter a lunar orbiter that gives us a permanent presence in outer space. Not just the space station, but a lunar orbiter. And from that, we want to go all the way to Mars. And so NASA has already now looked at the blueprints made by Boeing aircraft concerning what it would take to send probes to the Mars. In fact, we may even have a traffic accident around Mars because of the fact that SpaceX, not to be outdone, they're proposing their big rocket to take us not just to the moon with the Dragon space capsule and the 
and the Falcon Heavy rocket, but a new rocket, the BFR rocket, to take us all the way to Mars, even bypassing the lunar orbiter. We also have a new vision emerging for Elon Musk of SpaceX is to create a multi-planet species. However, for Jeff Bezos of Amazon, he wants to make Earth into a park so that all the heavy industries, all the pollution goes into outer space. And Jeff Bezos wants to set an Amazon-type delivery system connecting the Earth to the moon. Okay. That's a totally like a shift of our conversation. Uh -huh. but, yeah, but, but, but at the end of the day, direction. it's all about economics and resources. And I know a lot of people watch this, like why are you spending billions of dollars of going to Mars while leaving the planet die behind, yep. right? And I think exploration is important. And I think the development of this amazing science can actually help Earth. The problem is not ever the lack of resources. The problem is how we mismanage our resources because I have a big problem with military spending. Mm -hmm. I have a huge problem with military spending. And I know I'm shifting now back. No, to no, the thing that's is, fine. Let's because talk if, about you talk, if you talk about exploration of Mars, you talk about exploration of space, if you talk about solar power, it's really about how much resources do we have. And we have a lot of resources, but if you find major countries spending 30, 40% of their military, of their budget on military, well, these more money could go into whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. Green energy exploration, water. Uh, and, and this is not just like a right-wing policy because the last budget under Trump, he increased the budget for military spending by $60 billion. $60 billion that was approved by Democrats. While you were there, he was slashing programs for arts and education and health. And the environment. That's and environment. Yeah, yeah. So he's talking about unsustainable space uh, exploration. I'm talking about unsustainable earth living. Yeah, yeah. No, what, you know what? And I'm not saying that like we should shut that down. We should like go back and re repurpose our resources to actually have the, the prosperous life that humans deserve instead of just haggling $1 here, $1 there, while all of our dollars are actually going into destructive weapons. You know, I was thinking when I was watching this, I was like, okay, I'm not all that comfortable about the fact that private companies are now leading space exploration because at least when the government was primarily leading it, that was a global statement of values to say, oh, we, are, we value space exploration. We think this is important and that it's worth investing in. Whereas Jeff Bezos, you know, values making more money for Amazon, right? But then I thought, you know, actually, really what motivated the space race to begin with was military. We were afraid of well, Russia, you know, like, so you, when but, the government was in the space business, it was both doing it out of a sort of military paranoia and also developing technologies that could be used to fire nuclear weapons. But, it, but I think the, the idea of the private sector going in, maybe it's more than this, because I read an article last week in the New York Times about the rich of the rich, the richest of the rich actually wanting to leave Earth behind and find themselves a new haven, a place where they cannot be reached. Uh -huh. <laughs> and how they are like avoiding yeah, the apocalypse, either by leaving to a different planet or leaving to a different dimension and uploading their conscience and living forever. I think in the end, it comes down to values. It's a question like, what is it that we want? What is it that people want for the species? And the problem is that we don't, Agree. We don't, we don't, we don't agree. Know. It depends really like how rich you are or how poor you are that actually define what you want from this. You know, what I want is basically the planet should have sustainable, 
you know, a sustainable existence. People, we should allocate our resources as fairly as possible so that people can have a decent life. We have achieved all of this stuff technologically that should make it possible for people not to be starving to death mm -hmm. in the street. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, those are my values and I'm not saying I'm super great and everything, but I mean, I'm in a class where I could theoretically just value making a ton more money. That's not what I personally value. But there are other people who value more to be more isolated and enjoy their riches away from everybody else. Right. But I mean, if you have an education and if you've read books and if you really like kind of thought about things, that is clearly a selfish It is very selfish. Position. Yeah, but yeah. They, they don't care. <laughs> they don't care. Yeah. They're just in self-indulgent what they are, and they're just self-indulgent their pleasure. They, I mean, yeah, screw, yeah, yeah. screw your books and education, screw the rest of the humanity. How many billions do you need? How many private jets and how many mansions do you need to own? And yet they keep owning them and keeping adding them and keeping buying billions of dollars yachts that they maybe spend a, a week, a year, Well, they can just like rent one if they want yeah, to. Yeah, it yeah. just like it, it boggles me, but it's I don't know. I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm never in that position. I don't know how they operate, but it has to be self uh, selfishness and greed. Yeah, yeah. I guess what I'm saying is though that like it cannot be. I don't think it's the case that everyone above a certain tax bracket feels exactly that way. I mean, there are. They maybe they're good people. Supposedly, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have time for one last clip before we run. Okay. Want to do it? Okay. Mm -hmm. This one is Alice Drager, and it's called Slacktivism, the Problem with Moral Outrage on the Internet. People often substitute moral outrage displayed on the Internet for actual action. So there are a few instances in which outrage in social media have led to actual change. The Me Too movement is a good example of that. We're actually seeing real meaningful change where people who are creeps have been fired. Uh, businesses have gotten much more serious about harassment policies. So there's been some positive aspects of that. But it is often the case that when something rises in social media and there's an outrage moment, The people who are the ones who really are guilty of whatever we should be outraged about basically get a pass if they just wait for about 24 hours. It goes away, nobody knows about it, and it moves on. So a big problem with moral outrage on the internet is that it leads people to think they've done something when in fact they haven't done something. And because it's sort of compelling and exciting to stay online and display your virtue over and over again, whether that's from one political point of view or another political point of view, you're wasting a huge amount of time that could actually be going towards actual social change. So you're not, for example, registering people to vote. You are not um, thinking through a policy concept and developing a clear policy. You are just being outrageable. Now, maybe not a lot of people are um, qualified to do things like policy development. They're not in a position to pass laws. So they feel like they're at least doing something. But when they're doing that over and over again, what they're doing is they're creating a feedback loop system where the people who do have power are probably reacting reiteratively to where there's loudness. And loudness is not always where the best thinking comes through. So the internet is a wild and crazy thing, a beautiful thing. It has been wonderful for some parts of democracy, but it also is a tremendous distraction. And it can also be really dangerous in terms of leading people to think what is not true is true. 
So one thing I think you have to do when you're doing activism, if you want it to be effective, is you have to actually think about what the goal is. And that sounds really obvious, but it's often the case that activists have a sort of lofty amorphous goal, like stop climate change or uh, stop sexual abuse. Those are great goals, but they're not really clear. And they're not something you can say to yourself, how am I gonna get there? And how am I gonna know when I've done it? So it's really important to sit down carefully and think, okay, you have this big, huge goal, but what are the specific objectives that you're gonna try to achieve? And how are you gonna move towards trying to achieve those? How will we know when we're making progress? I think part of what happens for some people in activism is they identify with the cause in such a way that the cause is themselves. And they, as long as they're expending energy, they think they're achieving something because they feel good about themselves, because they're getting more attention. That should not be the goal. Glorification of the activist should never be the goal. It is the case that good activist movements often have somebody charismatic in the lead. It's also often true that that person has narcissistic personality disorder. So people who don't need to be really careful about thinking, how do we actually get towards meaningful goals that represent actual social change? Uh, last year we had uh uh, the biggest women's march in history, 750,000 people took the streets of Los Angeles and everybody was posing with the pink pussy hats and the signs they're, they're, and they're posting on Instagram. And, right, right. Uh, and then a few couple of weeks afterwards, there were local, local elections with, and 12% showed up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I mean, clearly that yeah, there's the, 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 bullshit going because on because there there's kind, yeah. because there's not there's no instant gratification from voting, right? There's right. no instant gratification of actually doing work on the ground, but there's instant gratification for the likes and the shares and the smiley faces and the uh, reposting of Instagram and 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 Facebook. And this is very unfortunate to actually reduce all your work to make your world a better place by just like working on a virtual world. And a virtual world where basically everyone that is hearing and talking to you already believes pretty much what you or, already or, believe. Or, or you're fighting with trolls. Right. That example that you cite is pretty clear. Like there's a very, very small number of people that actually went out and voted. Is that more people than would have voted if there wasn't a march? Maybe. I, I, you know, I, I'm not saying that we should not do the march. I'm not saying that we should not be outraged on the internet. I, I'm just saying that should not be the only thing that we do. I mean, I guess what I'm wondering is whether people are being activated and starting to organize in ways that they would not have done I, I if they so. didn't have, I mean, it seems like the Arab Spring is an example. Yes, but it fizzled away and now people are still living in that area on just like virtual fighting. It is like everything else, yeah, yeah. Like, like food, like driving, like li living the social nightlife, everything. Yeah, yeah do what you can, like, do it as long as it's beneficial and stop when it's not. Bassem Yusuf, it's been great talking to you today. Thanks for being on Think Again. Thank you so much. Hey, and that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. If you're new to the show or if you've been with us for a while and you're liking what you're hearing, I would really very much personally appreciate it if you could take a minute to rate and or review us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen. 
Uh, feel free to come join us on Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast on Facebook. And feel free to write me an email, jason at bigthink.com at any time, letting me know what you're enjoying about the show, uh, the meaning it has in your life, or anything else at all that you want to. I love to hear from people who are listening, and I've heard from people from all over the world, so I really appreciate that. And we'll be back next week with something completely different. And that will be the last show before we go dark for three weeks while I am away on vacation. And I really, really hope you can join us and then come back and join us again in the fall when we have a very exciting lineup for you. 